Welcome to The Ballot Box, global election coverage from a team of political scientists. I'm Jonathan Parker in Glasgow. I'm Andres Lesser in Brooklyn. I'm Chris Terry in Manchester. Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of The Ballot Box. Today we're going to talk about the House of Lords of the, of, of the UK and um, about second chambers in general. Um, you might remember that back in July, we came out with two episodes about the best electoral systems, where we assessed the UK's constitutional setup in comparative perspective, and we even ventured some recommendations. So this could be thought of as a kind of continuation of those two episodes from about six months ago. So, um, but before we dive in, let's let's ask uh, Johnny and Chris how they're doing. How's how's everything in the UK? Good. Yeah, how's, how's I mean it's still <laughs> it's still cold and miserable, but apart from that, <laughs> it's as good as like Britain in January can be. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a bit colder than usual, but mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Jan- January is like I think mm. I don't know if, if the same things happen to you guys, but. I think uh, we underestimate January. You put things off in December because you're just tired and you're like, oh, whatever, I'll do it in January. And then January comes around and it's like a massive, like nonstop Monday, um, mm-hmm. whole month. That's at least in my opinion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. anyway. And you don't have any money because you spend it all over Christmas. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> totally poor. Yeah. And uh, well, in this country as well, the 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 tradition is to pay people on like just before Christmas Eve for their January pay. So you end up with a, with a, with a, by the end of January, being like, please God, where is the money? Um, kind of yeah. Um, yeah. Oh wow, that's mm. dangerous. I didn't know about this. I didn't know about that. You yeah. Yeah. So now I'm private sector, so I got a Christmas bonus. So. <laughs> Money. <laughs> luxury what Wait, yeah, yeah. <laughs> lucky you wow <laughs> one more reason one more reason to to jump ship um <laughs> sure <laughs> anyway so okay well today we're going to talk about the house of lords um and as someone who's lived in in only presidential systems save for one glorious year in the uk um, oh, actually, no, in a year in China, which wouldn't count as either, I guess. Right. Which is um, neither really a presidential system or parliamentary system. Yeah, exactly. So save for these two brief but, but very interesting years of my life, I've only lived in presidential systems. So um, what, what, what would non-UK listeners need to know about the House of Lords? Okay. Like, well, I think Chris should should describe the. I think we'll know in a little bit more detail about how the House of Lords in particular features, and then we can maybe move on to. I mean, houses in Parliament. I mean, the House of Lords. House of Lords is a very odd chamber in many ways. I mean, in, 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 in essence, because it's kind of one of these typical features of British democracy, where I mean, most in, in medieval times, when you had kind of literatures of sorts. They were kind of divided often into kind of like there'll be a house for the aristocracy, there'll be a house like kind of normally for the landed gentry, there'll be a house that was for the sometimes for the priesthood, like things like that. And the House of Lords is essentially a leftover from that period. <laughs> that because of the fact that the British constitution is basically an evolutionary one that hasn't really ever had a moment where we've just kind of blown the whole thing up and gone let's start again from the beginning it's kind of been left over as a, as a weird kind of um holdover that said i mean it's not mostly a house of aristocracy anymore technically because we got rid of most of the hereditary peers in the late 90s um the people in it still like have title typically baron or something like that but um, they're what we call life changes. So they're peerages conferred by 
um, the political system to give people a place in the House of Lords. And they do have those for life. You know, you can resign now, which you didn't used to be able to. <laughs> um, um, it, it, um, it it's not them just passed on to your child and children arbitrarily, unless you're one of the 90 hereditary peers that are still allowed to remain. Is it? I mean, is how big? How big a chamber is it? How many people are in the house? I mean, this is one of the funny things because uh, it's actually hard to say exactly how many members it has because there's like different potential definitions, and it's not a fixed number either. But generally speaking, there's about seven or eight hundred. It's actually one of the. I think it, I think it's possibly the only upper house in the world. That is bigger than the lower house um, of the country, but it's uh, um, of the country. That was okay, but I mean, but in theory, well, I say in theory again. Like none of this is like we often talk about the House of Lords as if it has like a defined role, as if someone sat down at some point and gone, "This will be the House of Lords' role within the parliamentary system." Um, But the way that people often talk about it is the idea that. Lords aren't supposed to be kind of permanent, uh, aren't supposed to be people who turn up to every single vote. Uh, um, like they're supposed to be people who turn up um, on a kind of part-time basis um, when um, when legislation affecting their areas of interest come up. Um, so in reality, only about maybe three hundred or four hundred out of that of actually voting on it, on most on a given piece of legislation typically okay so there's several reasons why this house is i already think of this house as very weird um mm. the the number the just the sheer scale of it is is quite impressive the fact that it's bigger than the, mm. than the house of commons um the fact that it has hereditary positions and that um people yes. get assigned <laughs> basically peerage so that they can be part of it um and then mm. the fact that it's not it's not even a full-time job um it's yes. like it's meant to be um people who who kind of uh, come in and out be you know um so and and so therefore another kind of thing that I, I notice is obviously there are no elections to to elect the lords of the house of lords no no well Ooh. kind of come in the 92 members that i mentioned earlier that are hereditary peers are kind of elected <laughs> um, but within by the lords themselves um from lists of hereditary peers um who um so it's not really a public election um and some of these election elections have very mm. tiny electorates um so for example so like most of those peerages are basically reserved for so yeah so basically when the hereditary peers are kind of reduced in number um the Tories try, the Tories and the Lords tried to stonewall it because the Tories and the Lords had a majority of their registry peers for fairly obvious reasons. <laughs> um, and this is part of the reason why Labour wanted to get rid of them. Um, was um so essentially the, the, the Tory leader and the Lords against the will of the leader of the Conservative Party negotiated a secret deal with Tony Blair where um, where they would keep 92 hereditary peers instead of him basically blocking all legislation <laughs> um, in, until they could force through a House of Lords reform bill. Um, so this 92 are kind of left over that were kind of like, we'll, we'll deal them later. <laughs> um, and so the idea is basically like, because it was only supposed to be a temporary thing, they're basically represented in proportion to the number of hereditary peers that were from each party at the time that the hereditary peers were kind of mostly gotten rid of. And then whenever a vacancy comes up, they vote amongst their party group to have a new member 
of that party joint, which, yeah, is ludicrously mm. convoluted, but it's <laughs> kind of, yeah. Mm. <laughs> it's kind of weird stuff which comes up in the laws. Mm. I mean, the other weird thing that we haven't mentioned is the existence of the, the Lord's spiritual, the Church of England bishops, um, which we've mm. seen in the, in the laws as well, which has got to be, got to be, I mean, there's nowhere else in the democratic world, certainly, I don't think. Um, yeah. But also, also the, um, until 2009, there was also the law lords, like this was also the highest court of appeal in the United Kingdom. Um Mm. Part of the legislature, zero separation of powers whatsoever. Um, they were moved to the Supreme Court obviously at this point. But they the a relic of that is that they're still referred to as as Lord and Lady, um, the kind of the judges of the Supreme Court. Um Yeah. But, yeah. Fascinating. Uh, um the Lord Spiritual they're they're only they're only Christian then. They're only from No, they're no, only specifically Church of England. Oh and specifically uh, um, Church of so, England. Yeah. yeah. So, so not, for example, our Protestant denominations in the country don't have, oh, oh, uh, um, and um, oh, and for example, Catholics don't have kind of. So, albeit, governments in the past have had a tendency to kind of um, make representatives of other religious communities peers to try and um, to try and kind of like, um, so for example, the chief rabbi. Which is a kind of government position to uh, attempt to kind of represent Jewish people in the country is is very is often given a peerage now. Um, there's usually a, a bishop from the Roman Catholic Church who's usually given a peerage, um, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so there is it's a very kind of British. Well, this is the official rule, but here's what we kind of actually do in practice. <laughs> um, kind of deal that kind of goes on. Yeah, well, it's 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 the same as like if you think back to like pre-revolutionary France, and you're having like the three estates, mm. and you have the clergy and the and the the aristocracy mm. and the commoners. I mean, there's the whole thing is is based on the same function. You have two of the estates in the the upper house and the lords, and then one in the commons. Um, yeah, and and because mm. the because the Church of England is the is the state church, is official church. So I mean, the, the bishops still retain the right to sit there um yeah 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 although although another funny thing about that is it is specifically the church of england mm. because there is not an established church in scotland and wales anymore or, or indeed northern ireland <laughs> so yeah there's like lots of little like oddities um very yeah lots of them that's so interesting and they meet but they meet in the same in the same place in in westminster Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. It's, it's it's all one chamber. Okay. That's okay. Interesting. Hmm. Um, so how I mean would we consider them to be independent or or not? Are the lords independent? Well, so people often talk about the lords as being like terribly independent. Um I think in some sense it depends what you mean by independent. So like the lords actually quite frequently like um votes against government legislation and pushes back on it a little bit um so i think for some to some extent people are kind of used to are com kind of conflating that with independence um but that's primarily in my view because the lords no longer has a majority for a single party um so the 1999 reform is really important i think to understand understanding the current shape of the laws because when they got rid of all those hereditary peers again they slanted very heavily towards the conservative party um now you've kind of got this house which struggles hard to kind of get a majority from one party behind it um it's got quite a large number of Liberal Democrats in it. It's got also large numbers of what are called cross benches, which are people who don't have a party affiliation. Um, hmm. And 
Though, and basically, but broadly within themselves, the groups tend to vote almost as if they are a party, uh, uh, tend to vote very much on partisan lines. And the crossbenchers, funny enough, have started to act a bit like a party themselves. Um, they're quite, quite frequently like vote quite closely together with each other. Hmm. So I think it's not so much that independent lords are, are, um, are independently minded as um the chamber kind of looks independently minded because it has a different basis in terms of like its partisan representation that the commons does mm -hmm. um which is something that you see for example in countries with kind of asymmetrically elected upper houses as well so um, like the australian senate is a kind of kind of good example that's a directly elected house but that the senate there is elected on the pr Whereas the lower house is elected using a majoritarian system, mm. and the Australian Senate very much does act in a very different way. But it's not because those the, the Australian senators aren't partisan. It's because the Australians. It's because no party, single party, has a majority in the Australian Senate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, although um, the Australian Senate obviously is rather more powerful. Um, than the, the house yeah of yeah although funny yeah. enough funny enough it has has started it, 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 since the period that they introduced pr in the late 70s early 80s yeah late 70s it has acted more in a kind of house of review way that we mm. associate with the house of laws <laughs> yeah um so yeah i do think that like party, party balance in in other houses is like a really underrated like component of how they work um yeah. like well, yeah well this is this is why um, um this is why like Leipart will makes this distinction between like the upper houses which are um symmetric but mm. symmetrical in terms of like what he so you have the symmetric chambers which have like the same roughly the same power set but then he also says mm. it, it's really important within that for them to be um, elected and or selected in a different way, um, because if they just mirror the composition of one another, that's not actually providing any kind of effective check or anything on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, another 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 way. I mean, that's a really interesting discussion. Um, another way in which that could happen was if if there were if parties were relatively weak. Um, or have yeah. little capacity to be cohesive in one chamber, but a strong capacity in another. So would you yeah, guys yeah. say that, um, so the, the House of Lords peerages for life, they could ostensibly be part of the House of Lords. And is there a term limit for the House of Lords or not? And does that- No, not no, 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 no. The term limit is death. I mean, that's-, death, that's death or retirement, like, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And retirement was only introduced um what um in in like in the last 10 years right. <laughs> and does the does does the length of time that they can serve not provide a basis for independence in practice i don't know theoretically i mean, I, mean I think that's the theory but in reality hmm. people just generally vote alongside their party i mean you do right. occasionally have for example so, people defecting so, party, but, so they're yeah. like they're like american supreme court judges then yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah and, and I mean, one of the things is, I think one of the things is as well, like people typically get appointed to lords when they're quite old. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, and because of that, they've typically, you know, they're they're not they're they're not going into the lords because they're kind of like chasing after a career position or you know, like or you know, aren't set in their way. It's often like given as like a reward a lot of lords are appointed essentially as a reward for years of political service um so like a lot of ex-ministers end up in lords mm -hmm. a lot of like political long-time political donors end up in lords a lot of yeah um yeah you know, mm -hmm. yeah notable councillors end up in lords um mm -hmm. so, yeah a side note to um kind of confuse andres a little bit more but in a, obviously we said the um, resignation from the House of Lords is a very recent thing. You also cannot technically resign from the House of Commons um, until you have to be appointed to these. Can you remember what they're called, Chris? 
them. Mm. It's these two two random officers which have no role to them, but you have, can be appointed to them, and they disqualify you from membership. So if an MP says to them, yeah, yeah, resign, yeah. they technically resign. They get appointed like um, warden of the some sort of manor or something. And this, yeah, this yeah, qualifies yeah. from only in the uk only in the uk do you get these like super convoluted um solutions to there was, a, there was a big thing when <laughs> yeah, jerry yeah. adams resigned from the house of commons and he refused obviously refused the like the appointment for ages and they were yeah. had to face a real problem of it it was like <laughs> is this guy still a member of the house of commons I'm not quite sure like technically he, he still yeah. is he resigned, but practically just yeah, yeah. I think at the time the speaker had just decided that he'd resigned. <laughs> okay, and now something we haven't actually talked about, which is important, is how how powerful or weak is the House of Lords, um, and and what does its its power consist of? Is it like a typical upper house that can modify or initiate legislation? Yeah, I mean. Broadly speaking, the principle of the Lords, like, like on paper, the Lords is quite powerful in some ways. And so basically, the principle behind uh, the principle that the Lords is uh, of that's in law, the Lords now, is essentially that um, the Lords has to be has to kind of sign off on all legislation apart from confidence votes, and um, and finance bills um unless um uh, unless something gets held up in the laws for more than a year at which point the commons can override it um what in reality tends to happen is that if the laws doesn't like something then it will vote it down or it will um, or, or it will put a bunch of amendments on it once and if the commons doesn't sign up to those um it lets them through in part because the lords has a kind of obvious legitimacy problem <laughs> just like it's just like yeah people if the lords suddenly got too bolshy and started kind of putting a foot down about too many pieces of legislation then that would obviously increase demands for reform and there's like a bunch of kind of conventions that have kind of grown up around how the lords should act like one of the most famous is the Salisbury Convention, which basically says that the Lords shouldn't block anything that's in a party manifesto, um, like a governing party manifesto. On the big vision view that if it's in a party manifesto, if it was in the governing party's manifesto, then the electorate have essentially said we we want this to happen, and therefore it would be kind of democratically. Obviously, there's like a bunch of kind of issues with like that. Um, like at times the Lords have pushed back on stuff that's in party manifesto and they, they've said it's because um, the specific the specific thing they're objecting to is not the actual kind of principle of the legislation but something about the way that's been implemented and you know a whole bunch of complex stuff um, but yeah like, yeah so there are so the Lords basically kind of self-limits itself um, to try and kind of maintain legitimacy um that's that's also a very uk thing um so it has mm -hmm. more power on paper than it actually exercises yeah 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 absolutely. although i mean it, it's no it's no like u.s senate etc i mean it, it it can delay things kind of thing and that's its main sort of leverage mm. power but really um, really if the commons wants it passed bad enough then it can override the lords, etc. Um, it's it's slightly yeah. If it's like and again, if it's like a money and, bill and again, as well, then they have much less um, ability. They can only delay it for quite a short period um, at the point as well. Uh, so yeah, it's it's it it can do stuff. It res restrains itself from doing stuff, but it's not it's not super duper powerful. But probably is yeah more powerful on paper than it actually actually enacts in the, in the end i'm gonna i have a very there's a there's a really important question to ask but i'm gonna ask that one at the end which is um whether or not this is essentially a good chamber for the uk well, you know if, if it's still you know serving a 
a good function within the UK political system. And I'm interested in both of your opinions. But um, so, but I'm going to ask that at the end. So now that you've mentioned the US Senate in, in a way in reference, I think in the back of our minds, or at least in mine, there's definitely um, kind of, I guess this the, the House of Lords is in a way a model for other houses, probably the, the, the US um, Senate. And at some point, I'm sure the House of Lords was more powerful than it is today. It's gotten weaker over time, oh, yeah. probably possibly because of the problem of, of legitimacy. Um, and it's and it's selection. So you, you kind of already mentioned this, Johnny, but I don't know if you want to go back to kind of considering what Leipzig tells us about ways of of understanding of of kind of the conceptual tools around how we think about different houses, and um, hmm. if there's some more examples you'd you'd want to bring in. Well, he fits it into this is part of his broad, which I think we talked about before. This broad conception of like majoritarian and consensus democracy, and he pulls around as a, a hallmark of like a majoritarian um, democracy, either a unicameral chamber or a one with something with an upper house, which is quite easily overridden. The House of Lords, kind of quite obviously in mind. Um, but he also says that, that to be on the most consensus side, they have to be both um, kind of e equal in power, but then also did sort of distinctly selected um, because of this reason that, that if the, the house, if the composition is broadly the same, then it, it may just sail through Belgium's kind of um, Senate prior to a reform in the 2010s was very much, it was often like considered like this because it just kind of, for a long time just mirrored the composition of the of the upper house um they they, they scrapped this um for a, um, and made it so that it was elected by regional parliaments which while it's probably no longer um as powerful on paper is is possibly now more um but it's sort of about to be slightly more different in terms of its composition um but yeah i mean this is this is one that so that kind of requires this to these two two things to be to be present. Um, obviously, in the US, that's become the fact that they are differently composed has become immensely controversial at this stage. Um, in other countries, slightly yet less so. But yeah, I think this is um, a little bit down to the the US is is kind of the US is kind of like unusual geography in the fact that the the disparity um, between the the states and the fact that it does go down for like absolute equal um numbers of representatives and there is there are other countries that do um uh, do do kind of have the uh, federal countries which have the upper house as a kind of federal chamber for the state for the states um many of them do a kind of weighted regional representation though so the the, the you you probably smaller states will be overrepresented but won't necessarily be equal on that front um because obviously the U.S. and I contend with the fact that uh, the, the disparity has grown absolutely uh, enormous um, on that front. Yeah, in the U.S. it's not only, I mean, there's so many factors. One is the, the geographic representation. Then the other is obviously th that it's the first past the post principle. So mm -hmm. it's kind of doubly over, there's, you get like two layers of, um, Mis I don't know, I don't want to call it misrepresentation. It's a representation of a form, but it looks less and less like the general composition of, of the country. Mm -hmm. um, Mexico introduced um, PR senators. So there's some federal, there's some federal senators. And then, so per state, each state gets to choose two senators, uh, two, three senators. But then you also have compensatory PR senators per region and the regions change according to the shifts in population so that it doesn't get but but then you get what, what you were saying johnny which is that the senate looks more and more like the like the congress and so it, it's it doesn't actually it serves less as a kind of uh, counterpoint mm. yeah mm. i mean i'm not above i mean i'm probably and i think there's probably an argument to make really that the u.s senate would probably function better and u.s federalism would function better if they hadn't moved to direct election of senators and have maintained it as a kind of as a more direct representative chamber of um of of the kind of state governments um, and given them more of a more of a role in the in the center um on, on that point uh yeah i mean i can see that argument but 
as well. It is worth remembering that they did that because the had become incredibly corrupt. <laughs> like, like ludicrously corrupt. <laughs> so yeah, no, I I always get that argument, but I think it's like always worth going back in time and remembering why it was. <laughs> well <laughs> that came into place. It's always a good point bit, to place yeah. to mention that the US has too many states as well, which is also part of the part of the problem with this. Yes, it does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and like I mean, I, I mean, I think I, I think in terms of like federal chambers, the Australian one is a kind of much more interesting mm-hmm. model because of that, that um, it's elected by PR, um, but. Australia is a country that only has six states and like, a couple of territories, um, and therefore, like you can have twelve senators for a state that are elected in halves <laughs> by PR, and that's fine. If you did that to the US, obviously the Senate would be would would be significantly larger than it is now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I I don't think there. Are... Are there any federal systems with as many subunits as the US? Or is it the most? I think Russia. Because I'm struggling to think of one. Mm. I think it, I think it's just it's like democratic. Yeah, de- yeah, in terms of democratic countries, Obviously. I don't think there are any. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, yeah. Is, is is Indonesia a federal a federation? No. 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 Um, although I think it does have a kind of. Hmm. Upper chamber that kind of looks like a federal one. Yeah, but but several of but, the federal yeah, ones do there's... do the they do the whole thing of doing um, state leg the, the state legislatures or the equivalent of will um, select the membership of the upper house. I mean that's the case in India, in Austria as well. They they do the do that. Mm. Um, Switzerland Switzerland also has does the US um, <clears throat> two two members per per unit. I uh, think uh, for the upper house, although the the electoral system has switched around from the the um, Australian example, so PR for the lower house. And the, well, I mean, uh, technically, round every, for the the upper house, yeah. Well, uh, t- technically, every Swiss canton has its own electoral system for the upper chamber, mm. so uh, that that also makes it a little bit messy. But the other thing with Switzerland is that um, because eighty five percent of Parliamentary seats are represented in the government at any given time. <laughs> the idea that the upper house is like a significant block is kind of more questionable. Um, yeah. Anyway, because like both chambers, both chambers are basically dominated mm. by what are kind of governing parties. Swiss democracy is very weird. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> What is what are some of the more unique upper houses apart from the the obvious House of Lords? I think of. Um, yeah, I mean, I've I quite I've always quite had an attraction to the way that the Czechs and the um, Poles do their upper houses, where they have kind of PR lower houses, and then the upper houses are elected by first by like a majority system in single member districts. It's like it's like kind of oh you've got kind of like um a house where you've kind of got like defined geographic representation mm-hmm. um alongside PR one but where they kind of that one the defined geographic representation one is kind of secondary. I think it's kind of an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean um, um, I, I kind of I'm kind of I was fascinated by the Barbados Senate because it only has because it meets in in, in an office essentially or in like a, mm-hmm. on a, a round table and only has uh 21 members I thought that was it was fascinating when, yeah. when we had, um, yeah the, the, the Senate of the Senate of Caribbean islands often like attempts to kind of create something that looks a little bit like the Lords mm. um so they're often like appointed by the governor general would at um you know on the advice of like um the two main parties hmm. yeah that's um, right it gets appointed it's appointed by elected officials um but just the fact that it's so small um yeah. it obviously it represents a relatively small population 
yeah yeah it's got it's got to be a completely different dynamic because they can all establish like personal relationships mm. with each other in, in, yeah you know, yeah that's yeah. exactly it yeah we've obviously we talked about the the irish um shallot before um as a as a kind of a, a weird one um still still mm. existing in front of these trying to get these representations of these different like sectoral groups in society um although it doesn't particularly meet it very well um on that um but i think we yeah. should mention the 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 german bundesrat um although is a in a few, I mean, is it which is a, a really unique institution in men, men states kind of ways although i don't think is technically stated to be an upper house in the constitution no the 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 the, the <laughs> Mm-hmm. A German constitutionalist will often order that argue that it's not an upper house, <laughs> but I think it. I think it meets the standards of one to really be counted as one. Mm-hmm. But mm. yeah, but, I, yeah. I seen seen this kind of raised a couple of times in recent years with sort of people thinking about the future of the UK, etc. I'm not really sure how this how this would work in the UK context, but this is this idea of having the the Bundesrat is the, the Bundesrat is composed of delegations from state governments um, uh, rather than being kind of rather than being something which is independent and selected by state governments is mm-hmm. or state parliaments is is um, actually composed of the ministers of them um, that have a kind of voting weight and go along and yeah and, and kind of decide on stuff that comes out of the federal yeah parliament. and the state deli- the state delegations also have to vote um, in a single way as well, mm-hmm. um, which is also interesting. Yeah. Um, which, given that, you know, German state governments are often coalitions, mm. um, obviously you have a patchwork of different coalitions across the country, um, which, yeah, you can create some interesting like choices in terms of voting power. Yeah, um, and the Bundesrat can also only vote on legislation which affects areas of state competence. So, I oh, actually, when she was in power, had a kind of interesting read, which is like it, it, there was a kind of view that the Bundesrat had become too disruptive uh, to legislation. So she came up with this constitutional um, change, which gave more powers to the states. Um, like wholly, like wholly gave them some powers that were kind of previously um, shared between the two levels. Um, basically, by doing that, she took the Bundesrat out of um, out of um, contention in a bunch of bunch of um, legislative areas. Um, <laughs> it's like, yeah, very kind of Merkel move. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah oh, definitely. Yeah, but this is this idea. It very much fits with the side, sort of the German kind of conception of federalism as more of like the states sort of co-governing the country as a whole, rather mm. than the kind of American model of um, yeah, states, and yeah, federal government having kind of separate spheres. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Austrian upper house operates in a similar way, I think. Not, not. Similarities. What is the theory behind what a good upper house is supposed to do? I mean, I'm not sure there's like a strict like one one theory, but I think generally speaking, the kind of rule is that the upper house should like. I think quite often a lot of people also view that the a good upper house basically supplements something that the lower house perhaps doesn't do very well. So for example, um, in federal systems, the upper house is often designed to kind of represent the interests of kind of federal subunits while the lower house is a kind of, uh, is a kind of house that's supposed to kind of represent the people at large. Um, So uh, the Lords is kind of often seen as a kind of like chamber of expertise that kind of, has kind of people in it from kind of all over the uh, place, which uh, um, which kind of supplements the commons kind of knowledge and kind of you know talks things through in a kind of more deliberative way and things like that. Um, right. So, in, in, the, so, in the what's what's this 
phase of U.S. Um, political lore where the Senate is supposed to be the, the cooling saucer of mm, the yeah piping yeah. There's also that sense that almost regardless of the country, there's almost a sense that quite often, at least in Anglo-Saxon countries, that the 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 other house is like a more deliberative chamber. Mm. <laughs> Um, often a little bit more consensual in feel mm. to the lower house, and more uh, members members are meant to be older. Well, at least I don't know. There's yeah. a connection, right? And the House of Lords yeah. are definitely towards and one of them. This was the and that's the whole point of the the Italian Senate, which um very always as famously has a higher voting age limit um as well than the than the lower house or had. Had yes, yes, very recent reform in politics. But yeah, this was for ages, yeah, because it was supposed to be the house of the more mature people that would deliberate and uh, and kind of uh, maybe maybe correct hasty decisions made by um, by the lower house. Um, and always because in the assumption, especially in parliamentary systems, that the lower house is always the one, regardless of the power balance between the two. And some parliamentary systems do have very powerful upper houses. That it's the lower house which tends to be the one which um, is, is supplying the government and and for which they mm. rely on, on confidence. Um, are there any, to your knowledge, Chris, where you do need both houses? Um, Italy. <laughs> yeah, Italy is. I think the only one. I think Italy yeah. is the only one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was thinking. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, otherwise, mm-hmm. I think. Oh. Yes. And in Italy, you get the senators for life. I remember um, the mm-hmm. president. Yes, there are some senators for life. There can be up to five or something, and they mm-hmm. appoint kind of like, I guess, like celebrities or not as celebrities. People it's, 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 they're very often former presidents. Is like mm. is is where kind of most of them tend to come from. I think um, no, sometimes as well. Like I remember when um, you get kind of people. This architect Renzo Piano, who's very famous yeah. in the world, he got he got elected as a he got selected as a senator for life. Yeah, yeah, that's quite rare, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, but yeah, sometimes as well, um, I'll appoint, um, for example, someone who's intended to be like a technocratic prime minister, for example. Um, so they, like when Italy does that, which it seems to do about once a parliamentary term now. <laughs> they're often um because the um the person in question won't otherwise be a um won't otherwise be a member of the um won't otherwise be a member of the um legislature they'll appoint them um to the um to to the council as a centre for life. So yeah, Mario Monti, for example, is a member of the, the Senate. Mm-hmm. Is okay. So, is is um, having a balanced, balanced bicameralism good or bad? I mean, broadly, I tend to think it's a lot, just like a little bit pointless. <laughs> like, uh, like um, and I think I think it also just like creates more ways in which something can go wrong. Um, so, I tend I would tend to favour like having. Uh, like a lack of balance, both in terms of like composition of the upper house, but also leaning more power towards the lower house, like very clearly mm-hmm. making the lower house more powerful. Like not to the extent where the upper house like is basically pointless. <laughs> like, yeah, generally slanting things enough that mm-hmm. the lower houses will will kind of win out in most cases. Yeah, like the upper house should be there as a chamber of revision, as a kind of check on mm. hasty decisions etc like those things are good and useful and maybe as a chamber where you can get more kind of expertise and people who aren't in the kind of cut and thrust of political life is kind of thing and all represent represent um countries on a regional basis etc um all very good normal yeah. things but yeah possibly to have them both at the same level i think is probably excessive in most cases and if and, and this is it, smaller countries as well, like maybe you need to question the need for the upper house at all in, in many cases. I mean, it's why like well, the Nordic countries have an upper house anymore. Um, that's the thing. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, you do tend to find very much that is that 
larger a country is, the more mm. likely it is to have um, another house. Yeah. Um, I think I think Turkey is the biggest kind of notional democracy, shall mm. we say, without one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it's then, extremely. Then, then it's, and then it's Korea. South, yeah. South Korea with a population of like 40 million. Um, but that very much sits the kind of ethos of the Turkish state as well, though, the kind of unicameralism of that, like there, there is no awareness that like the Turkish nation is a, is a unitary actor, which is, and its will is represented. There is no notion of different regions of the state. There is no notion of different peoples that would need to be represented, etc. Um So yeah, so it very much yeah. is it very much was in, in the kind of foundational ethos to to not have an upper house. And yeah, Turkey is a really really big country and has a a a, a lower house of six hundred plus. And yeah, it has no um, has no upper chamber um, at all, which is which is quite weird. Um, but yeah, not, not all of the rest of the, the big big countries have one um all countries which have kind of prominent um regional differences or, or kind of region. yeah at least at yeah. least democracies yeah i mean for example yeah. china does not have another house yeah. but i mean china doesn't <laughs> yeah. really have like a functioning parliament mm. <laughs> um, mm. yeah i mean because we're do, doing an exercise with students this week about asking them to design a, a constitution for a if, if if Scotland became independent, um, etc., and, and to my surprise, most of them inserted an upper house um, into this. Um, this does seem to be quite a mm. kind of um, powerful idea that the upper house is uh, this kind of necessary thing for providing a kind of check and balance um, on, on on things. Yeah, um, should be there. This is yeah, yeah, and I, and I mean, in fairness as well, like basically the idea in in Scotland and Wales was that you wouldn't need an upper house because they made the committees powerful. And like the committees of, of the Scottish Parliament and what's now the Welsh Parliament um, were designed to be incredibly powerful. Um, but when you got to the point that the SNP could win won a, um, won a majority, suddenly the committees became not very not a very good check because the committees were dominated by the same party as as as, mm. um, as um, dominant dominate parliament um, in general, because they were, mm. they were drawn from <laughs> from them on a kind of proportional basis. So yeah, I, I think I can kind of although that probably wasn't the logic of the students, they probably weren't sat there going, "Oh, that that committee system worked terribly well." <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I get, I, I, yeah, it, I, I think that is a kind of good demonstration of like the limitations of unicameralism, um, even in a small country. Mm-hmm. One of one of the issues, and I mean, it's on the news, so it's it's maybe worth talking about. Is in in Peru, one of the issues is not only very a very powerful um, Congress mm-hmm. relative to the president, that is that basically has a totally different. Um, coalitional composition than the people who voted for president because of the extreme number of presidential candidates, but it's also unicameral. So they can exercise all these um, very powerful functions without the delay or the check of an upper house. Um, Mm -hmm. Most countries in Latin America have two houses, except for Central America. And yeah, yeah, I, I do think the role of an upper house becomes very different in a presidential system, which is probably why they're more likely to have kind of co-equal powers um, because the presidential systems are, to some extent, always about the idea of, like, of kind of- Checking the president. Different institutions fighting off against each other, checking the answers, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah. So yeah, we're only having, so, Whereas a parliamentary system is more about the idea that the lower house is very clearly in charge, yeah. <laughs> um, at least notionally. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Maybe maybe we should turn now to back to the back to the UK and what yes. should be in place um, and in the state. So, firstly, what attempts? There have been several attempts, really, to actually put in place mm. a, a, a different upper house and compared to the house of lords um so obviously there was 
the, the, the example that Chris has already talked about, the reform, the House of Lords Act, which the new Labour government initiated, um, which didn't go as for which obviously was made first attempt was to get rid of the hereditary peers, got rid of a lot of them, didn't get rid of all of them. And then their reform agenda kind of stalled mm-hmm. at that point. But um, yeah, the most successful, the more, well, the one that probably came, I'd say nearest to success maybe was the kind of Clegg attempt during the coalition years that was quite fully fleshed yeah. out. Um, but never do you, do what do you want to speak to that a little bit, Chris? And what that what that was proposing? Yeah, I mean, I was um, still for the Electoral Reform Society at the time, so I was kind of like keeping a close eye on that. I read a lot of the kind of white papers that were kind of involved in it. I mean, the problem with the House of Lords, House of Lords reform continually is, I mean, first of all, a lot of people in Parliament think it does a good job, actually. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, like uh, from all parties, I think that it does a good job. It doesn't necessarily mean that like something else would do something would do a better job. I mean, as I say, I think the main reason why the House of Lords, like why the House of Lords is seen to do a good job, is in fact some ways because it just doesn't have a majority for uh, for any one party anymore. Um, I think actually, like the 1999 reform really changed the way that the, the chamber worked in kind of mostly positive ways. Um, but yeah, like, uh, but part of it is kind of now, now like fear of change. A lot of British, um, people in politics and Britain aren't particularly aware of other houses other than the US Senate. So there's like this tendency to go, oh, if you change the basis of the House of Lords, we're going to end up with something like the US Senate that's going to go and deadlock everything. Like no, <laughs> but so that was part. That was one problem. Another problem was that the the Clegg reform was interesting because essentially what they were trying to do was kind of trying to create a kind of directly elected kind of chamber that would do something quite a lot like the Lords. So like the legislation included um, so twenty percent of um seats were going to kind of continue to be not elected um they were going to but they were going to be kind of reserved and kind of non-partisan um uh, including like some remaining bishops um then there was and then the rest of the chamber was going to be elected by pr um with um the idea being that um people would serve a single 15-year term um, with um, no possibility of um, re-election. The idea was as well that, um, and they were going to be elected to kind of every five years. So you can kind of see that they're kind of trying to get at doing something kind of like, um, that they were trying to kind of create something that had kind of less legitimacy, that had um, a sense of, um them being um kind of being there for a long while um but at the same time yeah kind of um at the same time also you know um also kind of directly elected and therefore some kind of democratic input into the composition of the lords um but yeah it kind of came a bit undone because um, politicians feared feared that it would um, take on too much um, power over the kind of legislative process and other place in the comments. Would you guys say that there's a, I mean, it, it's harder and harder to justify non-elected positions, but at the same time, it's very difficult to reform I mean a, a, a big system yeah I mean one thing is is that whenever you poll the general public about the lords for example I mean for decades and decades and decades they've always kind of said that the lords should be reformed or abolished um the problem that comes about with that is that the public doesn't consider and never has considered abolition of the house of lords a very important thing uh, no one, no one thinks it's like a particular. It's ne- never at the top of anyone's yeah. list of like most pressing 
kind of changes that could happen in Britain. Um, so therefore, it's very easy to kind of let it slip. Um, and another issue is, you know, again, it is basically, I think there's always been a struggle to kind of come up with a design for a new chamber, which I think just kind of makes sense to kind of adopt it. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, there's a way in which um, the House of Lords and other un institutions like this, unelected institutions, are are easily You know, you can easily criticize them, right? Um, I mm. guess there I, there have been a few scandals revolving, you know, involving lords. Yeah, um, but not that many. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Although, um, yeah, enough that yeah occasionally like they come up and people start kind of questioning the kind of reason for exist and i think for, i think as well the thing with the laws is that it um tends to um you know um but funny enough i think lords isn't terribly transparent about some things and i think if it was more transparent probably would be more scandals but there are also scandals about like other parts of like British public life as well. So, um, and people just don't pay as much attention to Lords mm. as they do the Commons or you know the government. Right. Um, which I mean makes sense because fundamentally it's, Lords is not as powerful as any of the other. It's and they, they also don't receive they don't receive a salary, right? They're not paid. Um, I mean, their life appointment. Well, they're, they're paid in the sense that so they're paid in the sense that. Um, if you turn up to Lords on a day to vote or something, you get three hundred pounds tax free. That's so, a good deal. I would, I would vote. This is a pretty good deal. Yeah, exactly. So if you come in and sign up, you get three hundred pounds tax free. Um, and yeah, uh, and basically when you count up all the kind of Lords kind of sitting days across the year. If you theoretically turned up to every single day, I think you could get a salary that's like equivalent to about fifty thousand pounds, which is not a terrible salary by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> um, but um, obviously, yeah. And some is like as I mean, this is kind of coming back to my independence point earlier. There's a sizable number of peers with, nowadays which are called like working peers who like genuinely do come in almost every day and therefore are getting fairly close to that but yeah your average law but yeah your laws aren't salaried in the sense that um mps are um, <laughs> certainly so maybe hell but, uh, but at the same time then they're, they're not unpaid right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not a bad deal being a lord um so no, going back to no, the you, yeah you're also get access to some of the best dinners of Westminster. <laughs> you get to hang out with lots of bishops too, apparently. Yes. Um, so going back to the question as uh, whether or not, you know, the UK needs an upper house, um, what do we say? I mean, we've talked about like different criteria to analyze houses. Yeah, I mean, we definitely, of I think we definitely do need an upper house for just too mm. big of a country not to kind of it's mm. like stretch our kind of legislative capacity over two chambers. I mean, and the Lords does do valuable work. This is one of the kind of things that's kind of a, a, a little bit annoying. Like, uh, <laughs> committees, for example, are except, uh, provide exceptionally kind of good work. Um, right. So this is me speaking as someone who obviously has like historically wanted to reform the board um, and again, work for organizations that were campaigning for that. The law like, does produce going good, like legitimately good work, but you know, obviously if you just abolished it, I think Parliament would be worse off for not having it. Mm. Um, I just think that there are probably designs of chambers that could do the job better <laughs> um, um, like the fact that Lords isn't legitimate, it isn't considered legitimate in people's imagination means it provides a kind of quite a poor check on 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 poly on um, the Commons and and, mm. and the government of the day. Mm. Um, 
I mean, I don't want to have a co-equal house, but I also think that we'd probably be kind of quite well off for having a, a, a stronger house than we have now. Mm -hmm. What's your take, Johnny? And, and, yes. and start thinking about if you could change, I'm going to ask you this next. If you could change one thing, if you could reform one thing, what would it be? So, Johnny, does, does the UK need a upper house? Well, yeah, the UK needs an upper house. I mean, for all the reasons Chris said, but also the fact that it's like, um, obviously a country which is it's just divided into several uh, it has had several obvious mm. set of subunits is a union of several uh, in entities um yeah. so yeah it needs it needs another house yeah. um it's yeah it's big um it, yeah it, and, and uh, it, especially if it's a scenario where we are not reforming the electoral system for the lower house then yes there needs to be a check on the um on the executive um and recent years have shown this to be far too true that you know, there needs to be there needs to be something there to uh, to as a, as a as a as an extra kind of counterbalance um on, on that um i think so I, I don't think we should have a wholly appointed house at, at, at all. Um, I think at the least it should be indirectly elected. That I don't I, I don't dislike the models that you get in somewhere in like the Netherlands or something where the where, where you get kind of like local government or the devolved parliaments etc. In our case and um, kind of sending people in there um, as well. Um, not wholly op I opposed to the idea from the kind of. Clegg idea of having the a small group maybe of, of kind of independent experts etc remaining um on yeah. time but yeah you'd need to think that much more clearly than this is the case now there would have to be a lot more regulation around how they were appointed because at the moment they are often etc throw some more conservative yeah donors yeah in the, the <laughs> appointments process is is frankly mm. open to abuse um mm. and mm. I and would, would say, I mean, in at least some cases, has been abused. Um, and 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 modifying the principle of appointment or the forms of appointment, including direct election or indirect election, would increase the legitimacy and therefore um, its power to a degree. Yeah, um, yeah. Functions. Yeah. Even if you didn't change its yeah. formal powers, but made it elected in some way, then it would just act much more independently mm -hmm. um and feel free to mm -hmm. to make to oppose the government far more um readily and then yeah. this would this would mean yeah that it would to the yeah, full I mean, extent is... of its abilities use its delaying powers much more frequently etc um yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and th this is definitely something that, i mean this is part of what happened in 1999 is that you know by by changing the composition of the house just by removing hereditary peers um the laws did become like a bullshit house mm. <laughs> uh, have been in the past um but at the same time as well i think lords is um yeah yeah it, it is it is a tricky one in terms of like how to reform it um and and the thing is is that you can't kind of scientifically say that if we kind of change the composition in this exact way the laws is absolutely going to kind of act in this way or that way you know it, 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 these things are always to some extent unpredictable um you know um so um i, I mean i think things would probably write themselves to a position where um because you know most of the institutions tend to be kind of self-protecting to some extent and like new lords wouldn't want to be kind of have its kind of wings clipped um but yeah um it, it, it it's, it's definitely a thing <laughs> that and and at the same time as well like the fact that the lords would increase in power is obviously a threat to the commons so i don't uh, so i completely appreciate why individual why mps might kind of go ah, maybe we, we should just leave it alone <laughs> <laughs> What what are your thoughts on what would you what would you if you were given the power to reform the Lords, Chris? What would you implement? I mean, I've I my my tendency has been always to kind of, my tendency is I think basically we have a tendency to kind of try and like talk about Lords in like a too big a bang kind of way, trying to kind of create like something that um like, trying to create a kind of perfect model kind of all in one go. 
I would tend towards kind of like maybe kind of introducing like elements of indirect election at first, um, like something like like the kind of French and Dutch Senates, where mm -hmm. the Senates are elected by kind of members of of um, lower elected bodies um, in the in the country, kind of local councils or um, provincial kind of um, representatives and, and um, I kind of feel like that would be a kind of like nice mid-step <laughs> um, and then kind of just see how it works out. Yeah, the Dutch um, Senate has got such a plug on this podcast. I don't think it's ever been mentioned quite so many times as, as this. Yeah, yeah. Two separate endorsements. Yeah, Although, uh, yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, and the Dutch Senate has like, the Dutch Senate is an interesting one too because um it it similarly has a kind of like self-writing mechanisms where it tries not to challenge the 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 lower house too much um i remember reading about um a former christian democratic prime minister in the 80s when the netherlands was kind of going through like something something similar to what happened in most countries where where the christian democratic government um for, pulled from the lower house was um, basically pursuing kind of quite monstrous policy, you know, kind of quite hard economic liberalism. Um, and this was a kind of moment, the kind of former prime minister who was in the Senate um, had always been kind of like more of a Keynesian and was kind of objecting to this. And he continued, he apparently had this habit of like getting up um, and saying, I oppose this legislation wholeheartedly, um, despite the fact that it's come from my own party. Um, for this, this, and this reason, but unfortunately, as a senator, it's not my purview to kind of block the government's policy, so I'm going to vote for it. <laughs> <It's just happening. laughs> um, uh, so yeah, like stuff does happen like that mm. in the <laughs> Netherlands as well. Mm. <laughs> Good. Right. Any, any any more to add on the topic of the upper house, or, or do we think we've exhausted it? I, I, I think it like does. I've, this was a crash course in the yeah <laughs> yeah there's a hell of a lot to discuss in this area obviously and um so yeah um so yeah it's been much very much a speed yeah <laughs> so yeah tune in next week for our episode on the dutch senate um gonna be fascinating <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, it's, actually going, it's actually going to be able to check presidential yes. election. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we are returning to um, a, a standard um, a standard election coverage podcast next week. We'll be talking, uh, we're returning to Czechia for the first time in a, in a little bit, uh, talking about the presidential election. Um, so yeah, see mm -hmm. everyone then. Great. Until next week. Bye.